Hi everyone, I hope that you've had a great week since we were last together. I'm excited to dive into week number two of what is deconstruction. Um, today we're going to be talking about what is cheap deconstruction. So for those of you that weren't here last week, we kind of did an overview of how did we get here? How did we get to a place where all of culture is actually deconstructing? And all of culture and is a place of doubt, whether it's a spiritual doubt or a doubt in postmodernism or whatever it is that anchored them before. Well, now I want to dive into, when it comes to religious deconstruction, what is cheap deconstruction, okay? Um, recently, I was on Instagram, and I was flying through because that's what you do in your spare time these days, and I came across a professor of theology, um, and it was just the subtitles, but all I saw was he said, you know, um, deconstruction is the most demonic thing that I have ever, the church has ever experienced, and I thought to myself, oh, oh that's not good because I really think it's great. <laughs> Um, and as I was processing, like, what, what could he possibly mean? Um, I realized two things. The first thing is that I do need to locate myself as someone who is a social worker um, and see society as existing with many different systems, systems that have power, that play into it. And so for me, when I, regardless of the definition of deconstruction that's being used, when I hear it, I instantly think about breaking down powers that are oppressive. Um, however, I can understand that from a theological perspective, I think what the professor was trying to get at is that there is a trendy way to do deconstruction that actually isn't deconstruction itself. And what it looks like and that you may have come across is either yourself or a friend of yours who after three weeks at university, after sitting in a philosophy class or reading the work of Foucault, all of a sudden throws out the baby, the bathwater, the whole thing and says, I have deconstructed and I am no longer blank and I am now blank. The reality is, is that deconstruction done properly, not that there is a measurement of, of the goodness of it, is really destabilizing and it takes a long time because it's essentially unlearning something that has been handed to you already constructed, right? So if you're in a place where you're like, well, I've already done deconstruction, it wasn't painful and it took about three weeks and you know, I went from one identity and swapped all the way to another, um, you may be offended by this, but I would put out there that you probably haven't deconstructed. Okay, you were handed the trendy idea of swapping from a theology to an ideology. You were given something prepackaged that you kind of, you bought it. Okay, so tonight what I want to do is talk about what is cheap deconstruction. Now, this is not a mutually exclusive example that goes over everything. Because of time, I, I picked two. Um, and so these are the first two that came to mind. The first is creating a theology that we are completely at peace with. And the second is swapping out one set of theology for a prepackaged set of either theology or ideology. So let's start with the first one, creating a theology that we are completely at peace with. Um, I really love the book, God Has a Name by John Mark Comer, and I would recommend it to anyone, atheist, agnostic, um, even if you grew up in the church and you feel like the constructed theology that you were handed from your faith family of origin is perfectly put together, I would still recommend reading it because it's a great narrative on who is God um, and what the book supposes or kind of comes from a, a place of is that most of us struggle with, with um, our relationship with God when he offends us. 
And, you know, we're kind of in a season where many people aren't reading their Bibles. They maybe are reading um, tweets about the Bible or listening to podcasts. But when you dive into the Old Testament, I mean, you are going to come across content that is really offensive and content that is hard to kind of negotiate, especially when you're used to the politically sensitive culture that we live in right now. And what I really appreciate about the book is that John Mark kind of highlights the tension that exists between worshiping a God who offends you in a culture that is anti-offense, right? Um, and so a lot of today is gonna to be really informed by his book. I, I don't know if you have ever watched the news and thought to yourself, you know, how is it that the ISIS terrorist who is beheading an infidel truly believes that they are worshiping God? Or how does the um, prosperity preacher in sneakers who is bumping and grinding with that person and posting it on Instagram, how do they genuinely believe they're worshiping God. Or the Hindu who is, um, you know, has killed a goat and is sacrificing it for their God, for Shiva, how are they convinced that they are worshiping God? I mean, I could go on and go on and go on. How about the nun who has sold everything and is living life in poverty for the sake of, you know, social movement and, um, and, and living a life of sacrifice, like they're convinced that they're worshiping God. How can all of these people be convinced that their version of worship is what actually honors God? Um, and what's interesting is that what those people think about God is actually why they behave the way they do. What we think about God changes and alters the way that we behave, right? And I think, I mean, that, that makes sense. The problem is, that a lot of us have swung from listening to who God says that he is to creating a God that we are actually really comfortable with. Um, Comer refers to a professor named Scott McKnight who teaches uh, a course on Jesus. And for many years, at the beginning of the semester, he would hand the students two surveys. One was a survey about themselves, what they thought, what they liked, what they believed, whether it was political or social or whatever it was. And the other survey was about Jesus, what they thought he believed, what he liked, political, social, and so on. And what's interesting is that he reported that 90% of the time, over a decade of teaching, 90% of the time, the survey that the student filled out about themselves was identical to the survey that they filled out about Jesus. And you know, even more obvious maybe is that those surveys were not the same for every single student. So not every single student was on the same page about what they thought and believed, but they were convinced that Jesus was on their page. <laughs> and that's terrifying. Um, you know, I'll be honest, there's a lot of things about God that I don't understand that make it very hard to you know, that I'm not necessarily at peace with, that I can find confusing or even just cringeworthy, where I'm like, why did you have to say it that way? Or why can't you be more, you know, flexible, <laughs> or a little more politically correct? And what I appreciate is, is realizing that when I am worshiping a God that I don't always agree with, it actually can, it reinforces or it encourages me that I have not just created my own God okay, that maybe it is true that I am worshiping him and not a figment of my imagination. 
on page 26 of God Has a Name, if you do have that book or you're interested in, in buying it. Um, John Mark says this, and I think it's, I'm just gonna quote it because there's not really a better way to put it. He says, here's how you know you've created God in your own image. He agrees with you on everything. He hates all the people you hate. He voted for the person you voted for. If you're Republican, so is he. If you're a Democrat, she is too. If you're passionate about blank, then God is passionate about it. If you're open and elastic about sexuality, so is he. And above all, he's tame. You never get mad at him or blown away by him or scared by him because he is completely controllable. Okay? So cheap deconstruction looks like being frustrated with the fundamentals of Christianity and just deciding that God has, he has evolved, he must have evolved, and that those things are no longer part of his character. Um, what, what's hard about this version of deconstruction is that the more that you pick at the things that offend you about sin, really everything that we find offensive about God is his acknowledgement about sin and his unrelenting, like, that sin is bad, right? So you can pick any taboo topic and it can filter down to this um, offense that we have about being told that we're sinful or that there is sin or that um, God's holy and that we somehow aren't, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Thomas Jefferson's Bible, but it's a really interesting um, example of what can happen when you just pick a theology that you are comfortable with. So Thomas, Thomas Jefferson did not believe in miracles or the supernatural, and he was very big on it. Actually, it's interesting, the more I was reading about him, he was really, he was actually deconstructing, but what he did by accident was he reconstructed without realizing that he was creating his own theology, um, which we're, we will get to next week is not the goal. Um, but he... Again, he didn't have multiple copies of the Bible. With razor and scissor, he cut out in the four Gospels every mention of anything supernatural. And as you can imagine, the problem with that is that you quickly end up cutting out the resurrection. So you have Jesus with no, you have Jesus who's dead. <laughs> and he never rose again. Um, actually, I, one historian um, Edwin Scott explains, if a moral lesson was embedded in a miracle, the lesson itself survived in Jefferson's scripture, but the miracle did not. Even when this took some rather careful cutting of scissors and razors, Jefferson managed to maintain Jesus as a role model and a great moral teacher, but not as a shaman or a faith leader. The danger with creating a theology that you are completely at peace with is that you will really, really quickly cut salvation out of the picture. You'll cut the need for it out of the picture. Um, you'll cut the need for the cross, you will cut out the need of miracle, you will cut out the need of, of Jesus, right? That will be the first thing that goes, or the thing that goes the quickest, and that is the part that's the most damaging. Could you imagine a Bible where there was no salvation? Uh, a Jesus who is a moral teacher but who never um, lived after death. Really, what is the point? And what's interesting is that so many Christians in our culture have actually written the whole need for salvation out of the plot because it makes them more comfortable to believe they don't need a savior than to believe that they need one. So I could go on and on about that one, but for the sake of time, let's move on to number two, which is swapping out one set of theology 
for a prepackaged theology or a prepackaged set of ideology. Okay, so some people when they deconstruct, they go from maybe you know charismatic to you know a different set of theology, and they just go from one and they buy another one and it's an easy kind of transition. Other people would take a set of ideologies, which in an interesting way, when it comes to spirituality, is a theology, right? It is a thought about God, um, but it's secular in nature. Um, yeah, so why do we do that? What is the temptation about going from one thing to another? Well, first, I don't think that's what people think they're doing, okay? Because I do think that swapping, switching, or going from one to the other is a destabilizing experience and that there would be a community around you that you may have to explain yourself to. At least your grandma, right? Who's like, why are you no longer this and now you're that? So there is this uh, tension and there is an awkwardness but what I would put out there is that there's something about the timeline and the wrestle and the struggle that does not make it deconstruction. It actually was just consumerism, okay? You were sold something and you bought it. And um, I mean, I've struggled with this, you know, doing my, um, being in school and in a really secular setting and, uh, you know, from a social work perspective, um, people don't love social workers that are Christians um, because of the history of the social gospel movement. And as I'm sure you're aware of with, you know, um, how Christians were involved with the First Nations population and, um, and all of that is walking into a lecture and seeing on the blackboard written F the Christ people. I mean, you want to talk about a hostile environment. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a Christ person and they want to F me. This is really uncomfortable. I would rather just buy what they're selling me, right? Whether it was queer theory or whatever it was, it would be way more comfortable than to be in an environment where I am at odds because of the faith that I um, adhere to. But this is something that humanity has struggled since the beginning, right? So if we read Genesis 2... And if you don't mind, I'm just going to read it. Um, we see that this struggle began at the beginning of time. So Genesis 2:15 says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die kind of offensive. You can do anything. You have ultimate freedom, which is the currency of our culture, right? We just want absolute freedom, which eventually is not freedom, <laughs> but actually it's really interesting. Ultimate freedom when they research, you know, when a child turns on Netflix and tries to pick what to watch, they have ultimate freedom, so much access, so much content that it's actually creating anxiety, a different kind of anxiety and an unsettlingness in even kids. So anyway, back to Genesis. Verse three, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from these trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that was in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it for you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and he hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid of you because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and so I ate. I mean, I think if you have been in the church for any amount of time, we are so thoroughly aware of this story. And yet, if you were to take any, think of any taboo topic, any mainstream topic that is really hard as a Christian to either be on the other side of or from a different side, not that you're confrontational, but just that you maybe see the world in a different way. Um, when someone is doing what I would call uh, consumer deconstruction or just buying a prepackaged whatever, a lot of the rationality behind dropping this for this actually follows the same logic that the enemy used when he was tempting Eve, right? Which is, are you sure this is what he said? Are you sure that this is what would happen? And are you sure that you even care, right? Like, do you, do you want to um, listen to what he has to say? Is that really what you want? And so what did Eve do? She wanted the fruit. She saw the fruit. Um, and this is total nuance on my part to read into it. So I, you know, Drew can correct me <laughs> after we wrap up. Um, but I've often thought to myself, like, aren't there like lots of trees? Like, wasn't there like another tree? Like how far would another tree be from this tree? It's a garden, like six foot walk, even a six minute walk. Like what was it about this tree that made the temptation so um, inviting? Was it the accessibility of it that it's just right there? Um, and I just feel, it really it's a feeling, maybe it's a conviction, probably more of a feeling, but I just feel like the accessibility of the fruit, the easy fruit, the good fruit, the one that looked tasty, um, was what was so enticing. You know, we don't know, did you have to cut through something to get the fruit from the other tree? Did you have to wash it? Like, was it not organic? You know, was it more difficult than this one? Was this one just so easy? Um, and so she accesses the fruit, and she didn't trust that God knew what he was saying. It looked good, so it must be good. And I think with a lot of ideologies or alternative spiritual theologies that we are being offered is that it does look so good. You know, love everyone and hate no one. I think that from a, like a word understanding of language, hate is not the absence of love right? It's not. But when we think the opposite of love is hate, um, that sounds really good. That's really enticing. And yet we don't understand language. We don't understand the construct of hate is not the absence of love, right? That's interesting. The absence or the opposite of love is probably closer to apathy or selfishness, right? Not hate. And so when we see an ideology being sold, there's no love, there's no hate here, only love. That is a low-hanging, yummy-looking fruit that would be easier to buy, with, which what's interesting about the things that are being sold to us is that they cost nothing, right? They cost nothing. That is easier to buy than to sit in the place that says, is there an appropriate location for hate? 
Yes, maybe hate has been put in an inappropriate place right now, but hate, just like doubt, just like anger, like we talked about last week, are feelings and emotions that are built into us as a sign that something is wrong, right? She didn't trust that God knew what he was saying, and so Eve bought it. She bought the new theology, the new packaged set of thoughts of, of how the world is, of who God is, and it was destruction for her, right? This is what's happening if you have deconstructed in three weeks or three months, okay? And that is a challenging thought, um, but, but maybe that's encouraging, right? Maybe when you've swapped it and you've bought it or you've kind of reconfigured who God is, there is a, um, a lonely hole that kind of exists where it's like, I mean, for Eve, there was massive consequences, right? For Jefferson, what's interesting is it says that Jefferson used to read the Bible that he wrote at night to help him fall asleep. <laughs> but I can't imagine the deep sleep that you could have when you've cut out the, the resurrection, right? Um, but if that's you, you know, when I was talking about this with my husband Mike, he's like, well, what's the action plan? Like, what happens if that's what you've done? And I have no real scientific answer for that except the encouragement that you can just back up, right? Or you can just deconstruct what you've reconstructed, right? You can stay on the journey of like, wait a second, whose agenda was that? Is this really who God says he is? You know, you can stay in discipleship and, you know, as we talked about last week and kind of will reinforce next week is that when people are deconstructing as a community, we need to wrap around them, not label them as a doubting, backsliding, fill in the blank of what you've heard of people who do this, um, but wrap around them and sit in that tension and in the no man's land and the awkward place of I don't know. And I really think that that's one of the safest places to be. Okay, so if you find, find yourself even now thinking, I think I bought something or I sold something or I've diluted something, now what? Well, it's actually not a crisis. It's totally okay. You can just back it up. Dive yourself into a community that will wrap around you, even if that community looks like a few friends, right, that can say, this is something I'm struggling with. Can we wrestle together? Okay. Next week, we will dive into reconstruction. What is it? How do we do it? And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing you then. I hope that this week is awesome, and we'll see you soon.